Matthew chapter 11. The title of this message, if you're taking notes, is The Burden of Success. The Burden of Success. Now, I can't stand people that can't follow directions. I'm a person that has to have everything systematic and I need to know exactly where I'm going, why I'm doing it. A bunch of my friends are like, let's go to Philly. Like, why are we going to Philly? Like, oh, no, just, you know, just go, you know, we'll hang out. And it'll be like 1 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, what are we going to do at 3 o'clock in the morning in Philly? And be like, oh, we should just go. It'll be an adventure. I'm like, no, that doesn't make any sense. I need to have direction in my life and know exactly what's happening. Once upon a time, I was in Maryland, and I wanted to get coffee. There's a coffee shop called Caribou Coffee, which is the best coffee on the planet. I'm willing to bet my life on that. Well, maybe not my life. I'll bet John Latona's life on that. <laughs> anyway, so there's this place called Caribou Coffee and there was no parking anywhere. So I was like, all right, well, I need the coffee and there's a parking lot that says, don't park here, whatever, we'll find you. I was just like, it'll be five minutes. So I step out of my car, I walk to the coffee shop and as I step in, I'm like, you know what? I should probably go back. So I told my friend to go back to the car and the car was gone in five minutes, less than five minutes, the car was gone. And I was freaking, I was like, I'm in the middle of Maryland and I don't have any friends. And what am I gonna do now? So my friend had some friends that were gonna come pick us up from Maryland. So we call them on the phone and I'm guiding this woman on the phone. And I say that with some spite and bitterness because she could not follow directions. So here I am with a map, I, I'm very systematized. I have everything planned out. I am at the corner of blah, 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 and this street, you know? I know exactly where I am. And I ask, what street are you on? And she replies, do you see a movie theater? I see a movie theater right now. I'm just like, no, no, I don't see a movie theater. She's like, all right, do you, do you see a homeless man? There's a homeless man, he's wearing a coat. I'm just like, no, what street are you on? And then she finally tells me the street. I'm like, all right, I see where you are. I'm looking, I'm following you with the GPS. Make a left. Oh, we made a right. Why did you make a right? Why did you do that? She's like, I don't know. I didn't want to make a left. I'm just like, <laughs> it hurt my brain. So I'm the type of person that I, I can't stand people that just go with the flow, whatever they, they feel, they just kind of follow after that. But I have known in my life that it has been characterized by failure and bitterness. You know, when I was just getting out of high school, I had some of the most depressing years of my life because during high school, I'm sharing this with you because I feel like I can be honest with you guys, but coming out of high school, I had a lot of ambition. I wanted to be used and at the time, it was acting. So I figured, you know what? You know, God will make things possible. I know it's really hard to get into this one acting school, but I'm gonna audition, I'm gonna train, I'm gonna do whatever it takes. You know, my teacher told me I had a gifting in acting. All the signs led to acting. So I was like, I'm gonna fall after this, I'm gonna do it. So I go and audition at the school and turns out, it doesn't work out, they rejected me. So I didn't make it into the acting school I wanted. Around the same time, the girl that I was talking to, I, you know, I figured I'll, I'll give it up to God. I'll stop talking to her for a little bit because I didn't wanna make sure my motives are right. She gets engaged and I'm like, all right, well, there you go. Two failures in one life. That's, that's pretty amazing within the same month. So I had, I think the story of my life is every point of failure has led me to bitterness. And even in Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about how he has seen most people are driven to success through bitterness and failure. 
So that's my life. Every time someone rejected me or someone told me that I failed or I didn't meet some standard, I said, I'll show them. I'll prove everyone wrong, you know, and I would want to make the last girl that rejected me feel stupid and be like, oh man, that guy's famous now. I could have dated him. That's how I felt. I was pretty selfish, but that's how I felt back in the day, you know. So eventually led me to this point where I was in this deep, dark hole where I was depressed. I didn't really have any friends at the time. And then there was a shining light of hope where everything started to connect. Finally, I was getting, you know, background work. I had an agent, and then I started getting jobs with photography. My band was finally going somewhere. It looked like we were going on tour. And then everything failed. God took away everything. I was talking to, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to mention that. Anyway, keep moving. Sometimes I wonder, I'm learning to control my tongue, so I'm not going to tell you. Anyway, so all the successes at the time that were building up just led to failure. And I remember this one point, John Latona was in my band at the time, where we were trying to get recordings done so we could release the album, play our album release show and all that. And there was a literal time where I was pulling my hair out of my head in frustration. I was like, ah, because I was so frustrated. Because have you ever worked hard for something and then all the emotion, all the time, you look back on all of it, like you're playing a video game, you spent like 60 hours on this one video game and then all of a sudden the file is erased and your heart drops, you're like, ah, all that time, all the nachos I denied, all the friends I stopped talking to because of this game. That's how I felt on a much bigger scale. So, in other words, I became crushed when I saw my expectations of what God should do would not be fulfilled. So my biggest fear in life, if you could put it in one sentence, is that in my life, I would do everything I could and still be found utterly useless. I don't know about you, but that's my personal fear, is that I would do everything I could, but at the end, it affects no one. In fact, when I was little, one of my biggest fears was that I had a disease. Like I smelled bad or I was, you know, in some way mentally disabled and my friends didn't want to tell me about it. And I would try my hardest and I would try my best to do something. But at the end, everyone would turn their backs and, and laugh at me behind my back. I remember when I was little, I was like three years old. I worked hard upon this clown show for my parents and I worked really hard. I had my brother involved in it and we had like hats and I had costumes and I performed for my parents and my mom said that's it and I went I still remember this that's how scarring it was and I blamed it on my brother I was like you loser you have ruined my life my epic performance has failed so anyway with that in mind Keep that in mind. Let's get to the text. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Why do you think that Jesus thought that people would be offended because of him? 
Because, like, healing is so offensive, right? Jesus, I'm so mad that you healed that beggar. There's that crippled guy over there, and I can't believe you healed him. We wouldn't say that, right? Why was it so offensive? Well, we have to give some biblical context. So there are these people called the Pharisees. And if you remember what we discussed last time that I taught, you had the people of Israel, they were wishy-washy. They either, they said, well, I don't want to serve God. I don't want to serve Baal. I want to serve both. I don't want to have to make an exclusive choice. So the Pharisees said, you know what? We're not going to be wishy-washy. We're not going to be on one side of the fence and then flip to the other. We're going to dedicate ourselves to the Lord so much that we're going to make sure we're following every rule. We're going to memorize the Bible. We're going to ask ourselves in every situation, what would Moses do? And wear Moses bracelets, you know, to remind ourselves of the laws that God has written so that we can be righteous. So they, they for themselves built up the righteousness. The Pharisees said, we don't want to be like those people. And so the Pharisees obviously thought if they're righteous and they're building, their, building themselves up to follow God, that God would obviously honor them. The expectation was that the Jewish Messiah, which is Jesus, would come and overthrow the Roman government to restore power to Israel. That's what they thought. They thought Jesus would come as the Messiah and overthrow this Roman government that was oppressing them for so long. They thought the innocent would be honored and the guilty would be punished. So what was Jesus doing with all the sinners and prostitutes while John the Baptist was in prison? That's what the followers of John the Baptist were thinking. They were, they were thinking to themselves, hold on. Jesus is paying attention to these evil people while the righteous are in prison. So they asked themselves, are you, are you even the Messiah? Are you the one we're waiting for or should we look for another? They thought that the Messiah would come in power like in the times of the prophets. And you can kind of relate with this because at this time, there was a gap of 400 years uh, from the book of Malachi to the book of Matthew when Jesus came. So there's 400 years where there are no miracles and there is no biblical revelation. So they began to wonder, is Jesus really coming? Is this really going to even happen? Now think about it today. If we were going to see revival come today, if we were going to expect Jesus to come, what would it look like? You'd probably think Jesus would come down in a cloud. You'd probably think that Jesus would like, you know, appear at the White House. He'd overthrow government. Something crazy would happen. Fire from heaven, lightning bolts. But imagine you were told that Jesus has already come back already. Everyone, I have an announcement to make. Jesus has come back. And he's a baby. He's living in the projects in Philly. What would you think? You'd probably be like, uh, what? Yeah, God of the universe, he's, he's in the projects in Philly. He's a baby. He's being babysat right now. You'd probably be like, that does, that's the opposite of power. That's the opposite of what we're expecting. And so they thought, this is the complete opposite of what we're expecting. Are you really even the savior? So now I don't know about you, but oftentimes I found that God does a lot of things that are counterintuitive. I wouldn't think of a lot of things that God would do. We read passages like Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Everyone knows this, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So you read the promises like that, and you're like, okay, I read my Bible. I make sure I'm staying away from the sinners. You know, I'm not doing any of the bad sins. I'm not, you know, 
I'm not going and doing drugs. I'm not having sex. I'm making sure that I'm abstaining from those things. I'm not cursing all the time at least. And I'm reading the Bible. So obviously, whatever I do shall prosper. But what do you do when you fail? Because obviously, we all have times where we fail. But the text in Psalms seems to suggest that the man devoted to God will be successful in what he does. So doesn't this seem contrary to your own personal experience? Haven't you ever failed before? Like you, you're in sports. You love to do sports and you're training every day. You work your butt off and finally the, the game comes. You pray, Lord, help us to win and you fail. You lose. Or you're studying for a test. You know this test is crucial. You're trusting the Lord. You're studying all you can. You study all the questions. And when the test comes, you still fail. What do you do when failure comes? Not to mention, it often seems like it's the wicked people that are prospering. Right? You do the best that you can. You train and you learn how to sing. You take music lessons. But at the end of the day, the people that are in Hollywood, the people that are famous, are not godly people. They're sinners. They're wicked people. So have you ever been in love with someone? I'll leave that to be a rhetorical question. Don't raise your hand. Have you ever felt like you connect, you both love God, everything seems right, but in the end, ends in failure? Right? We can all think of a time, well, at least, maybe just me, thinks of a time where you were talking to someone, you both connected, everything just seemed like you, you were made for each other. And you said, Lord, is this pleasing to you? And it didn't seem like you had any objections. But at the end of the day, she didn't like you or he didn't like you. And you're like, well, God, what's wrong with you? Why didn't this work? And I've asked that in my own life before. There was one time I was in uh, Denny's. And I was, eating, I was eating dinner at the time, I guess. But I was still having breakfast food with my friend. And we're, I was t telling him how much I love this one girl. And I, I just, you know. I was telling her how beautiful she was and how godly she is and all those wonderful things. And then I had a great idea. As I was eating my ham, I picked up my ham and I said, I'm going to mail this ham to her. So I put it in the mail and I shipped it off. And then you know what happened? I never heard from her ever again. Now, I don't understand. Because for me, it, it would seem that if you send ham in the mail to someone, that they would fall in love with you. <laughs> Do you believe I'm your youth leader? <laughs> so anyway, please don't think I'm that much of a loser, because I am, but it was the best idea I had ever, okay? Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 through 9. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways. Thank the Lord, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now this does not mean that we have to be miserable while on the earth, just because we can't understand God's ways, just because we don't know what he's thinking. And it doesn't also mean that we have to be in the dark about what God has planned for us. So it doesn't mean that you have to be miserable like, well, God says his ways aren't our ways, so I guess I have to be sad. I guess I have to be ready for disappointment, ready for failure. It doesn't mean that, and it doesn't mean that you have to be in the dark about what he has planned either. So with the first point, we don't have to be miserable while on earth. 
You know, there are people that would say that you have to repress all desires, kind of like you're Buddhist, right? Like you shouldn't like desires and, you know, you shouldn't want ice cream, shouldn't like people. You say to yourself, you know what, I'm going to be single forever. I'm not going to be attracted to anyone. I'm not going to like anybody. And someone's like tempting you with ice cream or something. And you're like, oh, no, I can't like things. I've learned. I've learned from past heartache that I don't want to love anyone anymore, love any ice cream anymore. It doesn't mean that you have to repress desires. Rather, it means that we have to be patient. Verse 3 of uh, Psalm 1 says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruits in its season. Doesn't mean always right away, but in its season, it will produce its fruit. And also with number 2, it doesn't have to mean that we have to be in the dark about what God has planned for us. We can actually know the things that God has planned for us. And don't you always want to know what someone else is thinking about you? I mean, if there's one superpower, I would want to know what's going on in everyone's... Probably not, actually. That's a bad idea. Because it would probably be bad things. But don't you always want to know... As, no, as much as you know how bad it is, don't you want to know what people are thinking about you? We want to know the truth when we ask, do you like me? I say, yeah as a friend. They're like, what is he really thinking? Or when you ask, do I smell bad? No one ever tells you if you really smell bad. I had a friend where we were, he was picking me up and I was going in his car and it reeked. It was terrible. Like it just smelled like cheese with, I don't want to describe it. It smelled terrible. Okay. But the funny thing is I was going to say something. I was like, I got to speak the truth. And then he says, you know, what's funny. I haven't showered in a week and I don't smell bad. And I was like, ah, yeah, yeah, you're right. It smells great in here. I kept my mouth shut. All of us want to know what people really think when we say, like my status for rates and confessions. Otherwise, you wouldn't ask that in the first place. I don't care. You guys care, apparently. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 through 12 says, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Amen. Let's pray. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> we could stop there, right? No, no mind has imagined. No one knows what God is thinking. But it continues on in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. For his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. You can't know someone's thoughts because you aren't that person and you don't have their spirit. But we can know God's thoughts because we have inherited the Holy Spirit. So we can know what God has planned for us. And here's the key. The fact that God's ways are different from our ways should tell us something very important. Namely, that in order to understand true success, we need to learn more about God. In order to understand true success, we need to learn more about our God. So Jesus might have not met the expectations of John the Baptist or his followers, but look at verse 7. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the world to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? 
Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So John the Baptist and his followers were looking for God to prosper them while on the earth. But thankfully, God does not stoop so low to fulfill our earthly expectations. We might have earthly expectations just because we live on earth. And God does not stoop stoop so low to gratify those expectations. So yeah, prosperity on earth is a low expectation, which means there's something higher to be hoping for. While we're stuck on earth, our best ideas of what true fulfillment could be like will be very limited. That's just the fact of living on this earth. And so often when we focus on our earthly wants and needs, our prayers are also very limited. You'll pray prayers like, God, give me a voice to sound like Phil Wickham. That's a low expectation. We'll pray, God, let me get into a good college. Or God, give me direction. Alistair Begg, not Alistair Begg, sorry. A.W. Tozer once said, We have been too blind to see or too timid to speak out or too self-satisfied to desire anything better than the poor average diet with which others appear satisfied. Colossians 3, chapter 2, or chapter 3, verses 2 through 3 says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ. It's time to look less for worldly success and instead to set our eyes on things that are above, which means heavenly success. So you might say, well, don't I deserve something for all my hard work? You're just telling me I should just give up this life like I'm supposed to be miserable while I'm on the earth and then just be like, well, heaven's going to be good. And that's my only consolation. You might say, I might try to live my, my life for God, so shouldn't that earn me some kind of recognition or something? Look at verse 16. Does it sound like you? Jesus says, but to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned you and you did not lament. I know you guys use that word lament all the time. But maybe you're saying to God, God, I did everything for you. Why aren't you doing something for me? God, we played the flute for you and you're not dancing. This is the fundamental problem, by the way. This is the fundamental problem that I have with that song that says, all things work together for my good. And I'm like, who's good? It always bothers me. I can't sing it. I will refuse to sing the my part. Because that verse says, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we can't misconstrue that to mean just you're good, but it's God's good. Because in the second verse, verse 29, it says, for to those, I'm not going to misquote this, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So when you have that verse, all things work together for good, it means God's good because everything, all of creation is being conformed to the image of God's son. Now let me give you some of the problems that could happen if you think solely on my good and why I think that's detrimental. The person who thinks only about their good forgets two things. Number one, we don't deserve anything, 
but punishment and death. Because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And secondly, living for eternity with God in heaven is an incommensurable good. That's a new word you're going to learn. Incommensurable, which means it's not even able to be compared. It's impossible to make a comparison with that kind of good. And Paul illustrates this when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, So do, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal way of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, think about it for a second. Who's writing this? This is Paul, right? This is Paul. He was beaten for crimes that he didn't commit. He was whipped with lashes that he, for a crime that he didn't actually do anything. You know, so here's Paul, and he's talking about his afflictions, how he was shipwrecked three times, and he was bitten by a snake, and all these things are happening to him. But he says, it's not even worthy to be compared with the weight of glory. It's not even worthy to be compared. So when Paul says this, that means even if, and check this out, because this might sound harsh, but it's true. Even if you lived a life full of torture on earth, it wouldn't be worthy to compare with the glory you would receive if you went to heaven. So we might look at a boy in China that starves to death and ask, how is that working together for his good? Well, if he gets to go to heaven, and children do get to go to heaven, the glory he would receive, I'm sure that he's not going to say, well, I don't know why I went through all that suffering. And in fact, he gets rewards for those sufferings as well. So what's this mean for us? Well, the world is not our playground. It is a battlefield. The world is not our playground. It is a battlefield. And so that's not to say that we're not going to enjoy anything on earth. I'm not saying that you have to be miserable on this life, that you have to have less fun than, than everyone else around you. And in fact, if you're living a life dedicated to God, you will have an immeasurable amount of fun more than people that live in the world because they're searching for things that won't satisfy them. They're looking for joy in all the wrong places, but we know where the source of all joy is. But instead, what we're saying is we aren't to look for perfect circumstances on earth. So although I'm not saying that you're going to be bored or I'm not saying that you're going to be miserable while you're on the earth and you're going to have to suffer and everything's going to be terrible, what I am saying and could be the danger is that you're looking for perfect circumstances to accompany you through life. And you say, Lord, I'm going to go this way, this direction, and I want you to honor it. Lord, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to become famous. I'm going to glorify you in that thing. Or I'm going to be a famous, you know, worship leader or soccer player or whatever it is. And I'm going to glorify you in that. And you have to be happy with that. You have to make that happen. And what I'm saying is that isn't biblical. It's not your good. It's the good of God. But God who is our heavenly father, knows what kind of thing will fulfill us the most. So since we don't have perfect conditions in life, there will always be people that hurt us. There will always be harmful situations in our life. There'll be times that we cry, times that we hurt. And there's many Christians that might say, well, I'm waiting for God's calling. I'm waiting for the perfect circumstance. I'm waiting for the one, right? Alistair Begg says, 
There is no ideal place to serve God except the place in which he has set you down. There's no ideal job for you to hold, no ideal neighborhood in which to live, and no ideal church you can join. There are good jobs, good neighborhoods, and good churches, but no ideal ones. People who search for ideal circumstances forget that all that is ideal and perfect is saved for heaven. So when you have circumstances on this life and you have different things on this life and you're like, well, this just isn't enough. Yes, but that should make you long for heaven, not earth. Not say, well, Lord, make things better here on earth. Well, he might, but in heaven, we're going to enjoy everything. We're going to have the fulfillment of all enjoyment. Go to verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which are Gentile cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it, will, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So Christ was the stumbling block for the Jews. They had been given so many chances. The Israelites had been given so many chances, and yet they did not believe because he was not the Messiah they expected. They, he wasn't the God that they wanted to worship. They said, well, yeah, we expected someone else to come. Someone who's a little bit more powerful than you. That was their idea of God, and God, who was Jesus, did not meet that expectation. The Pharisees wanted a Savior that would come in power and commend them for being so righteous. They wanted a God and a Savior to come and say, yes, you have done well. I'm glad that you kept yourself from all those sins. I'm glad that you did all those things and made all those rules. They said, God, I haven't walked in the counsel of the ungodly. I haven't stood in the path of sinners. I meditate in your law day and night. Night. So where is my success? This idea is called existentialism. And that means, I know it's a big word. I'm teaching lots of big words today. I'm sorry for that. You can punch me later. The idea that existence precedes essence. So they would say that you exist and there is no meaning to your life. So you just got plopped up into the earth and there you go. There is no God to decide what you're doing, no God to determine your destiny. So therefore, you got to make up your own existence or you're going to die a failure. So a lot of us feel this weight on us saying, if, oh my gosh, if I don't do anything, if I don't find out what my gifting is, if I don't find out what God wants to do in me, then I'm going to wind up a failure. So people rush to find out what their calling is. And people have their whole lives planned out for them, right? Your parents pay for you to go to high school and pay for you to go to college, pay for all these things so you can get a car and you feel this debt owed to them. And you say, well, I have to become something now. And if you can't, you feel like your life is a failure. So you say, there is no meaning that God has for me besides my own existence where I define myself. And so if you can't define yourself, you're always grasping after something that you can never really obtain. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudence and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it's, it's seen good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here's the good part. Maybe, I'm just going to guess, everyone look up here. Maybe you're the type of person that doesn't really fit in in this youth group. You've been coming here maybe a couple weeks, maybe you've been coming for a long time, you never feel like you fit in because you have a whole bunch of people that you feel are on this high spiritual plane that you can never meet. And you say, well, I don't relate with that person at all. I'm depressed. Or maybe you're saying, I'm still suicidal, so God can't use me. I still have all these things that are causing me to, to look down on this earth and there are things in my life that are giving me baggage and I can't serve God and God will not love me because of this baggage. So I can't fit in in church. I can't fit in in youth group. I can't fit in with these Christian friends. What am I to do? John 16 verse 33 says, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Jesus isn't saying that you're not going to have tribulation. He didn't tell you that you're not going to be depressed every, time, every now and then. He didn't say that you're going to have a hard experience. But what he is saying is, that's the world. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The world will tell you, you aren't really going to be used of God unless you have a gifting. I felt that weight upon me. I've heard people tell me that you can't be used of God unless you can sing. You can't be used of God unless you're popular. Or if you're not outgoing, how are you going to evangelize to people if you're not outgoing? Or God won't use you because you've looked at porn. Or God can't use you because you've had sex. Or God can't use you because you're gay. People put all these limitations on you and God says, stop that. The whole message of the gospel is that Jesus is everything, so you are free to become nothing. You are free to become nothing at all, to depend on God Although the yoke still implies submission, you say, God, I'm giving it all to you. He says, I'm going to do the work for you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Is that your experience? Does that resonate with you? Do you feel like it's easy to live the Christian life? Because I don't. I need to continually remind myself that I'm not under the weight of the world. I'm not under the weight of what other people have for me. Not other people's expectations. Not even my own expectations of what true success should look like because there is a God whose ways are higher than my ways, whose thoughts are greater than my thoughts, whose thoughts I can know because I've, I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me, who can teach me all things, which means I can be like Paul. And whether I have a lot of things or I have little things, whether I'm homeless or I have a home and I live in a mansion, I can do all things through Christ who, who strengthens me. Do you want to live like that where you can say, you know what? Even if I live as a homeless person for the rest of my life, I think God can use me. And I think I can be happy just doing that. Because it's not about me. It's not about my own success. It's not about my own fame. But I can rest in Jesus and what he did on the cross. And that's what Jesus said to John the Baptist. He says, 
John, you're thinking that greatness is being out of prison and doing the things that you were doing before. But realize that in the kingdom of heaven, you're going to be the first. And so many times we want to be on stage. We want to be those people that are out. You want to be like the people that are preaching up here or singing songs up here. And you say, well, that's to be really used of God. But God looks at the person, like the poor widow that tosses in her two mites or two pennies and says, that woman gave more than the rest of them. The question is, are you being diligent? Are you looking at yourself and saying, what has God given me? I know I am single, but you know what? God can use my singleness. That's what you have to tell yourself. And stop looking to other things. Stop looking for other expectations and say, well, I will not be used until I'm at least 24. Because that's when God can really use me. And realize that God has called you to where you are now with your gifting now to use you in a specific place in a special time of your life. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. True success is allowing God to take control of our lives. It will not be easy because the trials will still be there, but he will give us the strength in the moment to endure. At the end of the day, God doesn't want your works. He wants your heart. In the book of Joel, God says, don't tear your clothing in grief. They're so used to just tearing their, gro- their clothing whenever they were mourning, whenever there was something traumatic happening. But he says, don't give me your sacrifices. Give me your heart. Tear your hearts instead. And so many times we always think of things that we have to do for God. Say, well, I'll show God that I'm serious. I'm going to dedicate my life to him. I'm going to read 100 chapters of the Bible a day. And I'm going to do everything I can. And God says, stop that. Who gave you all these expectations? Why is your life so hard? I didn't make it that hard. You're making it hard yourself. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So aren't you tired of pretending? Some of you have come here today, as you always do, and you just pretend. Your friends ask, can I pray for anything? You're like, yeah, I'm fine. Doing great. Just like you, doing great, doing okay. Loving Jesus. I read my Bible today. I must be doing okay. Aren't you tired of pretending like nothing is wrong? I think that's one of the greatest weights. One of the greatest burdens we put on ourselves is this weight of artificiality. Where we pretend to be something we're not. And we say, yes, I'm following God. I love God. But deep down inside, you're saying, I am spiritually barren. There is nothing in here. Aren't you pretend of... Are you, aren't you tired of pretending that you are right with the Lord? I'm going to end with this quote by A.W. Tozer, also in his book, The Pursuit of God. He says, regarding artificiality, I am sure that most people live in some secret fear that someday they will be careless and by chance an enemy or friend will be allowed to peep into their poor, empty souls. So they are never relaxed. Books are sold Clothes and cosmetics are peddled by playing continually upon this desire to appear what we are not. Artificiality is one curse that will drop away the moment we kneel at Jesus' feet and surrender ourselves to his meekness. Then we will not care what people think of us so long as God is pleased. To men and women everywhere, Jesus says, come unto me and I will give you rest. The rest he offers is the rest of meekness. The blessed relief which comes when we accept ourselves for what we are and cease to pretend. So maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you've been 
playing the game. And you've been saying, well, I, I, I really like that last study Alan did because he was just talking about being for God or against God. I'm for God. I mean, I make my own rules. I follow him with all my heart. But deep down inside, you got nothing. You're like the Pharisees. People wanted to be Pharisees back in the day. They were beautiful on the outside. And Jesus said, you're like whitewashed tombs on the outside. But inside, you have dead man's bones. Do you feel like that today? I don't want you to keep going. I want you to just keep sitting in youth group and realize that there is help for you out there. Man, I was there all throughout like an entire year of my life after high school. And I'm sure that a lot of people go through, through that time in high school as well. But for me, it was right after high school where I had no friends, had no purpose in life. I felt like I lost everything. But the good news about that is when you have nothing, then you're free for Jesus to become everything. So if that's you tonight, I highly recommend that you find a leader. Maybe you're not really comfortable with anyone here that's a student. Maybe you don't know the leaders too well, but you know what? Find someone. Ask that person to pray with you. Say, this is what I've been going through. I know it's hard. I know I've been playing the Christian. I know I've been putting on a front, but I really want to be rescued from this. I really want salvation. I really want to know what it's like to come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Maybe you had a different Savior. Maybe you've been trusting in a different God. He had an expectation of a different God to come and save you. But don't let this day go without finding out if you're right with God or if you're just playing the game. You're just pretending. So let's pray.